My name is Musa Kwonga, and this is the Rabona Podcast. This special World Cup episode of the Rabona podcast is called The Unexpected, a fitting name because so many surprising things have happened so far during this tournament. The greatest surprise of all has perhaps been the very perform of Leo Messi's Argentina. Joining me to discuss this and many other surprises of the tournament is the wonderful Michael De Silva and in the background, the glorious and elusive producer, Bad Goal Rai Rai on Twitter. Michael, great to see you again. Hello. So let's get straight into it. Argentina. Wow. Pretty brutal. Pretty brutal. Brutal, but not unexpected. So we've just seen a 3-0 destruction, dismantling at the hands of Croatia. Yeah. What's going on there? I mean, it's basically a multiple organ failure of the Argentina team, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, you have to feel a little bit for Leo Messi. He'll be 35 in 2022. Oh my goodness. This is his last chance and it's not looking good. Um I mean, they're a fantastic team of individuals, but, you know, even that is lacking these days. I mean, they have, you know, alongside Messi, Aguero tonight. He didn't really get a kick. We have Aguero. Um, we have Gonzalo Higuain. <laughs> Angel Di Maria. A man of the match in Champions League final. Mm. Paolo Dybala at Juventus. Javier Mascarano. I mean... But crucially, they had no one to take take charge of that game, you know? Right, right. It was getting away from them. They needed a midfield general, you know? They needed someone to take it by the scruff of the neck and say, no, we're going to force them. But it's force whenever Benega went to Valencia. These are good players. I mean, these are... There is some kind of strange psychological hold this tournament has on the Argentina players. Maybe, I don't know. Or, or maybe they're just not good enough. I don't know what's going on here. Mm. I mean, can I just throw something out there? I mean... This is a country with a population of it's almost 45 million people. Mm. Deeply passionate about football. Football's playing all over the world. And they can't produce, out of all of those millions of people, they can't produce midfielders of the quality we've seen in the past, you know, of the quality of, let's say, a Fernando Redondo. I mean, what's, there's got to be at least a cluster of world-class midfielders somewhere tucked away in the country, but we're not seeing them. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah, it has to be a failure of the infrastructure, you would say, because... It's a it's a first, really. I mean, you look back. I mean, this is a team that lost in the final of the last tournament. Right. It was only four years ago. Um, but generation after generation, they always come up with these these great players. Brazil are the same. Um, so something's fallen apart in the last four years or the last eight years, let's say. Um, Does the World Cup matter too much to them? I wonder, because you look at Brazil in the World Cup 2014, and Brazil have never won a World Cup at home. But away from home, they seem to be liberated. I mean, they win, they've won five on their travels. I just wonder if there's a question of this mattering too much. If you look at the Copa America losses as well, I think it's very important not to see this World Cup in isolation, but see it in terms of they've lost two Copa Americas back to back to Chile on penalties, very traumatic losses. They lost the last World Cup final. Di Maria was injured for the final. It just, I wonder if psychologically this generation is, as Miguel Blaney tweeted tonight, Maybe just the breaking point. Maybe they're exhausted. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I think too much pressure is put on Messi to to uh, be the new Maradona. I mean, in my eyes, he's a better player than Maradona. Um, 
but for some reason he needs to prove this on the international. It's strange, isn't it's, it? It's bizarre. It's strange. It's like, you know, like LeBron James in basketball, everyone said, well, he's not a great player three wins with Cleveland. And I was like, well, he's been to that many finals. It's such a strange. Yeah. I, I mean, is there anything that Leo Messi hasn't done? That, what, I mean, does he still really need to prove himself? Does he need to win a World Cup? Oh, suddenly that's going to change everything. I think he feels a responsibility to do so. It's a, it's a funny one. He he doesn't speak much messy. You know, he's not a man of many words. But the intensity of, of the looks on his face when he comes, I mean, he was completely disconsolate when he came he was, out. He was exasperated, I think, with those around him. Um, he just wasn't getting the ball in the kind of areas where he can be devastating. Um, and, you know, you've got guys in the team like Mascherano who, with the greatest respect there, they're done. I just, they I, I just think, I mean, I love Mascaron. I think we all do. And he's someone who's given everything for that team. Mm. And I just, I just wonder with Messi how history will assess him because, you know, we have, we're in the age of social media. And frankly, I think if Maradona was around in the age of social media, his legacy would be a lot less gilded because Maradona basically ran world football for five years, mm. you know, 87 to 90, 80, so 86 to 90, Maradona was mm. absolutely supreme and fell off very fast after that. I mean, by 93, he was playing in Sevilla for a season. Yeah. Although so, he still managed to bang one in in the 94 World Cup. Well, well, it was a wind assist. I mean, it was a wind assisted goal. Let's not, <laughs> <laughs> let's not get into that. But, you know, I think we've mythologized Maradona and we've had Messi under the microscope and Cristiano Ronaldo obviously is in superb form. But mm. these are both players, you know, Maradona and Ronaldo who had far superior supporting casts. Mm. You know, Messi had a supporting cast of the Portugal team. He'd be a happier player. You know, they've got, yeah, there is no one like João Moutinho in the Argentina squad. There just isn't. Yeah. Well, Argentina's best chance, um, or Messi's best chance with Argentina was four years ago. Um, and, you know, I have a feeling that they're going to crash out of this tournament in the first round. Um, but, you know, let's take nothing away from Croatia. They were fantastic tonight. They mm. they did the job in emphatically. How? I mean, what's the architecture of that victory, would you say? Because I thought Rebic scored a terrific goal, a terrific volley, um, and it was very quick-footed. He surprised me, actually. But the midfield access of, to a lesser extent, even Rakitic, but, you know, the supreme Luka Modric, mm. I mean... Mm. That midfield is is brutal. Well, Rebic has been doing this all season for Frankfurt. He's um, he's been devastating at times, um, and he was superb in the German Cup final against Bayern. Um, you mentioned Modric there, of course. He was fantastic. Rakitic really anchors that midfield. Mm. Nothing gets past him, but you know he can drive with such energy, and he really he fuels that team. I think. What I love about Rakitic is his evolution. This is a guy that was basically a 10 at Schalke, a creative player, and then has adopted a very responsible brief for Barcelona, box-to-box player, you know, basically managing the decline, the physical decline of Xavi and, to a lesser extent, Iniesta, and a superb foil for them both. But at the same time, he hasn't tried to replace either of them because he knows his strengths. Well, that's the beauty of Rakitic, I think. I mean, he's one of my favourite players. Yeah, 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 he's great. And we saw, we we really saw him shine tonight and... uh, and you know, when he plays well, Modric plays well. Right, when right. Modric plays well, Croatia wins. They have this great humility, the two players. I love the amount of work that they both get through. So you see them in fairly deep-lying areas and they push up the edge of the box. At one point in the first half, I think it was still nil-nil, they were both in the final thirds. 
and pressing the goal really, really high up, but also with the responsibility to get back. I mean, it's a terrific sort of double act, I think. And Musra, I think this is a good time to introduce our first guest on the show, who is Juro Vidilak, a Croatian football journalist. And I think he knows better than most about the secret to Croatia's success. Um, Juro, thanks for joining us. Thanks for calling me. Um, how important would you say Rakitic and Modric are to this Croatia team? I mean, both of them played fantastically well tonight. I mean, yeah, obviously the the best players in the current squad, and they are uh, well above their peak, um, especially Luka Modric. Um, the the focal point of this team, uh, you could see during the game versus Nigeria, where Croatia really sent out a really quite an offensive uh, lineup. Uh, it was basically a four to four lineup uh, with Mod, both Modric and Rakitic in the center of the field, uh, you could see how much they mean for the current setup. Uh, but uh, in the match versus Argentina, they kind of took different roles, uh, especially Modric, who is playing unusually high. He's basically playing as a number 10, which isn't his natural role. He isn't suited to play that close to the opposite opposite back line. Um, yeah, and th- th- that was really deliberate. And I think that he managed to uh, cover the role really good. Yeah, and, and Rakitic, um, but especially Modric, are you know at their, their peak right now. And there's a sense that perhaps this is their last chance to really impress um, for Croatia in a World Cup. Do you get that feeling, and do you think that they're they're really they're putting everything into this tournament to uh, t- to make sure that they they do their best? Well, yeah, the similar thing actually happened with the Euros back in France. Uh, they they obviously reached their peak back then as well, and uh, it's always a it's always a matter of sort of internal motivation for them. It's really hard to explain because. Um, they obviously are really talented footballers, and no, no one can really dispute that. But on the other hand, there's always, been, there's always been a lack of real motivation. There's been a lack of the cutting edge, so to say, in the Croatian national team over the years. So people always have kind of high expectations, especially due to the fact that this is really a talented generation. So, yeah, uh, this is really their last chance. I mean, Luka Modric is uh, approaching his 33rd birthday in uh, September. So, yeah, uh, this I really doubt that he, he'll even make the Euros uh, in two years' time. So, yeah. And finally, with this fantastic victory over Argentina tonight, Croatia are now on course to top the group. Um that would mean avoiding France in the next round, probably, and playing Denmark, it looks like. Um, is there a feeling in Croatia, would you say, that this could be their year, that they perhaps repeat 98 and go to the semi-finals or even one better? Well, it's a bit of a bizarre situation. I mean, you had the Nigeria match, which was obviously the result went uh, accordingly uh, as far as Croatia goes. 
But uh, on the other hand, there wasn't really any structure at that uh, at that point in that during that match. Uh, we've seen a little uh, structured uh, play from Croatia. It was mostly uh, reduced to long balls. Uh, they were feeding long balls towards Mandzukic, which really didn't. I mean, it's really bizarre to criticize the the play, but. Uh, there wasn't much open play uh, during that match. Um, with uh, with uh, Argentina, Croatia only took what Argentina gave them. They had, perhaps, they had structure uh, this this evening. But on the other hand, uh, if it isn't that, you don't feel that convincing. Because if you remember uh, during the Euros uh, in France, uh, Croatia won against Spain. It was also a major victory. It wasn't as big as margin as it was this evening. Mm. But on the other hand, it was still a big victory. And then once they uh, faced a structured opposition, they kind of bailed out really quickly. Portugal really neutralized them uh, with that pragmatic play, uh, with that yeah. pragmatic structure. So it still isn't uh, very clear how much... Uh, how far exactly could this Croatian squad go? Sure. Well, who knows? Um, so far, I mean, you'd have to say Croatia have probably been the best team of the tournament. Um, so things are looking positive. Um, Juraj, thank you very much for joining us on the Rabona podcast tonight. And um, we will continue with the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we've talked about Croatia being unexpected in this tournament in terms of how well they played. Move on to Spain. And Spain, have Spain really been that unexpected? Because they've shown signs of being a preeminent favourite, but they've also showed maybe expected weaknesses. Is that a fair assessment, do you think? Yeah, I think they've shown more weaknesses than I would like given that I backed them. You saw this, we saw this coming, <laughs> didn't we? We saw this coming with Spain, didn't we? We saw the midfield maybe being attacked a bit by stronger teams. We saw them maybe struggling in, in specific areas. It almost feels like every single Spanish weakness so far has been exposed by, you know, by the right kind of pressure, but at the same time, they're undefeated. You were right in the last podcast where you said that Spain's biggest weakness is their strength, their their quality in midfield. Mm. Um, also gives them the opportunity to be swarmed in midfield. Right, right. And we saw that in the Portugal game, which was uh, a classic game. But a few days later against Iran, I think they really highlighted that Spain can be got at. They're weird, Spain, because, they, because they're so good technically in the middle. They don't get the ball out of the middle that quickly. And they seem very reluctant to use the pace they have on the wing. So they use Vasquez instead of Asensio. It's interesting. It's almost like, let them free. Let Asensio free. You know, as Mohamed Butt said, it se- it seems like they fired their coach the day before the World Cup started. <laughs> that's what it seems like. I, I no, I think that's a bit generous. Actually, <laughs> I think there's a wider systemic problem with Spain. They always they're what I talk. They're, they're a team that basically has a kind of a voluntary glass jaw. They're almost giving other teams a chance. Spain, the last couple of World Cups or some major tournaments, the right back position. You know, it was Arbeloa before, and now we've got Nacho there. And why they did not take Sergio Roberto? I just don't get that. I mean, this is a guy who is incredibly versatile, can play as a right-back, and play as an interior midfielder in a three. 
and they haven't taken him. I would agree. It's a strange um, one. But there's, I think Spain defensively have been awful across the board, to be quite honest. Mm. Um, you, you know, De Gea fumbling in a way that you never see him do. Um, Pique getting nutmegged so easily. <laughs> um, even Ramos doesn't seem quite at it. Um, Maybe it's fatigue, isn't it? Maybe just sort of getting to these stages and being so successful, it, mm. it can be mentally exhausting. Well, they look creaky and they raised their game against Portugal. Um, I felt like they, they, they did that because they had to. They had to prove that the sacking of the coach hadn't had such an adverse effect mm. on them. And they knew that... Uh, that Portugal would give them a good game. and Are we being it, a bit unfair on Spain? Because they did face peak-era finishing Ronaldo in the first <laughs> game. They, they, Ronaldo was brutal. He was incredibly ruthless. And, you know, let's not forget this is a World Cup. Like, you know, they've got four points from the first two matches. That's a really good start. Yeah, but they could easily have drawn against Iran. Mm. Um, Iran really exposed them. And they were they were lucky, really, to come out of that with a with a victory and if they had two points from two games we we'd, be, we'd be speaking to them we'd I, be speaking about them in similar terms I as we are being, about argentina i wonder though sorry to be the devil's advocate my own argument but i wonder if we're being too harsh in the age of social media about this stuff you look at england in 1990 world cup semi started the group pretty flat you know holland egypt you know these were these were uninspiring performances they ground through Built up ahead of steam, ended up in the semis. Could have gone through to the final. Arguably, should have done. Could have won the whole thing. You know, should have, could have. But you know, they they built momentum. So Spain have shown they've scored four goals in two matches. They've scored a great variety of goals. I mean, those goals are all very different. You know, it was own goal, one of them. But uh, it was a beautiful <laughs> and, a, and a deflection, a beautiful <laughs> but a beautiful team goal. I must say, a beautiful team goal for Costa's second against Portugal. Uh, a great strike from distance from Nacho. They've scored probably the greatest variety of goals of any team in the tournament. So maybe they're in good nick and maybe actually having a couple of bloody noses in the first couple of matches is a good good prep for the rest of the tournament. Yeah, they've shown the best and the worst of them, I think, so far. I think that would be fair. Um, it hasn't been so consistent. Um, and World Cups are not won in the first week. Mm. Um, it's about building up some momentum. But what do they need to improve then? Because they're going to get... They've got to learn how to defend as a unit. They're all over the place. Mm. Um, they've proved, you know, my concern going into the tournament was that they wouldn't be able to score, but they can. They've scored four and two. Um, they couldn't kill Iran off, though. That's the thing. They couldn't, you know, they got three goals against Portugal, but Iran, fun enough, seemed like a tougher matchup. Maybe underestimated, I'm not sure. Mm. I mean, certainly the midfield they picked was a midfield that wasn't, you know, wasn't really expecting to be counterattacked against you know, that, that, that severely as, as they saw. Well, I think um, it's quite interesting that over the years, um, the worst teams in tournaments on paper mm. are better now than right. they were 20 years ago, let's say. Um, that base level has improved. So teams like Iran are set up, um, you know, they have a, a good coach and um, they're set up very astutely, tactically. And they know that if they sit behind the ball, they can get something out of the games. Whereas 20 years ago, I think you saw a lot more thrashings. It's wild, yeah, because if you look at the World Cup 2002, Brazil basically had, I think they took five goals off Costa Rica. They faced China as well. They basically had a couple of gimmies. Whereas now, 
you know, I mean, there was Portugal, North Korea in the last one. You know, well, yeah, 7-0, was it? I think 7-0 was 2010, wasn't it? The 7-0. And there was a gimme there. But you don't really have those matches where you go into thinking, I'm definitely going to win this. I mean, Costa Rica, look how much they've firmed up since they got trashed by by Brazil. They're now a really dangerous proposition. Yeah, There's really not that many easy games in the tournament. That's it. That's it. And I think it's really only until we get to the last 16 that you can start judging teams properly. Um, it's just a case of getting through at this point. Do you know the funny thing I will say about the last 16, the weird thing with the last 16 in the World Cup, there's almost a catharsis when you get through the group stages because there's actually quite a few thrashings that happen in the second stage. So if we look at Brazil, I think in 98 they beat Chile 4-1. They beat them 3-0 in 2010. It seems like almost the second round of the World Cup is a kind of like, ah, we're few. Yeah. We're, through, we're through, we've had two days to regroup. It's relief. You know, let's let's freshen up again and get back into it. Exactly. I almost think we don't learn that much about teams until the quarters. I yeah. think the second round is almost like waving people through. Yeah. It's like a second wind, if that makes sense. So now we're hitting the core of the podcast and the quintessential unexpected, the French team. I mean, France, you just never know what's going to come out of out of that particular corner of the world. And again, this World Cup, they surprised me. Two wins, but in my opinion, haven't really got out of second or third gear most of the time. How do you feel about that? A bit like Spain, I think they're just, uh, they're going through the gears. At the moment they're in second gear, they'll step it up into third. Do they have a fourth? <laughs> no, but they, you, <laughs> they do. Wonder. Of course they I do. Wonder. But they just don't play in the same, you know, in the, the way we have come to expect dominant teams on the international stage to play to dominate games like Germany did in the last World Cup, for example. They're more reactive, I think. It was funny because they chose a lineup today that reminded me of the one they played when they put in I think, their best performance that I've seen under Deschamps. It was the 5-2 win over Iceland, Euro 2016. They lined up in this game with a 4-2-3-1. Same sort of thing they had against Iceland, which was a defensive-minded winger on one side, Matuidi this time as opposed to last time, Sissoko. Uh, a creative wing on the other side, Mbappe in a wide position. And then Pogba, part of midfield too. And crucially, they had Giroud as a fixed point of reference up top with Griezmann in behind. Whereas in the previous game against Australia, where they struggled to win, they had the front three, ostensibly very fluid front three, of Mbappe, Griezmann and Dembele. This attack seemed more effective than the game against Australia. I mean, does that make sense? It's almost a paradox. You you would expect the last France lineup to be more fluid in attack, but this one felt more effective. But Peru saw a lot of the ball today, mm. and they made life difficult for them. Well, um, I mean, like Australia to an extent, maybe not in the same sense, but they made it harder to break down. Yeah, that's true. I feel like France um, don't need the ball to be good. Right. Um, when you have a guy like Kante there sweeping up. Mm. Um, they can just sit back and soak it up. And when they do, you know, they've got outlets. And I think that's what makes them so strong. Their attacking outlets are just so quick. And they can just turn defence into attack. The thing is, though, I'm frustrated with France because the basic execution was really lacking in quite a few... Th there was a moment when France received the ball, they were breaking, and they missed a pass in, tra a pass in transition... And they went back to Loris and they lost this moment. The, the Peru defence was opening up. And Peru actually very disciplined defence, you know, throughout the game, relatively speaking. And then you just remember thinking the build-up is, it, I hate to say it, 
it was like Jose Mourinho's Manchester United in the first half of the Premier League game. It was slow, unstructured, and the gaps kept closing, and France weren't playing through the lines very well. It was really, really noticeable, especially in the first half. But when they got it right, it really worked. So there was one moment when um, Peru were on the attack, Varane brought it out from defence, and he spotted Mbappe in space, and immediately that was the ball. And Mbappe was away. In the inside right position. Yeah, right. exactly. Yes, and yes. that's how quickly they can turn defence into attack. And that really should worry every other team in the tournament, I think. It's funny because watching Mexico against Germany, I saw a team that were really able to exploit the space in behind the German back four. There's a phrase we don't hear very often. <laughs> and yet we're not the best at executing on the counter. And I looked at France and felt similar. I just thought to myself, I haven't really seen that many great counter-attacking teams at this World Cup. I haven't seen teams that hit on the break really well, which is an oddity because counterattack has been the defining tactic of modern football. But we haven't seen a team master it yet. That includes France. I should ask you a question, actually, Musa. What do you think uh, Giroud adds to this team? Because he's not always an automatic choice. I think he's marvellous in this setup. What I love about Giroud in this setup is that he is wonderful at combination play. He lines up very well with other attackers. He allows Giroud space in. Sorry. Giroud allows Griezmann space in behind and he's very good at pinning the centre-backs back another 10 yards but also is very good at bringing other wingers into the play. So you saw the opening goal today. The run he made into the channel for Pogba, he anticipated it perfectly. Ball was deflected, tapping from Mbappe and it's Giroud making the run, it's Giroud creating the space and I think his presence up front and his technique and his vision allow the freedom for the players behind him in a way that the other players don't. You know, Griezmann is many things, many great things but he's not a point of reference for the attack. And joining us now to discuss France's prospects further is Tom Williams, football writer, broadcaster, specialising in English and French football and author of Do You Speak Football? So Tom, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And where are you joining us from exactly on this most global of episodes? I am in the very unglamorous location of Finsbury Park in North London. Hey, hey, listen, you, you was it N4? N4? N4, N4 Massive. Ah, uh, magnificent. I lived there myself for a while. So yeah, thank you for joining us on this Cosmopolitan podcast. And we're going to talk about France. Um, what's your assessment of France so far at this tournament? Well, they've played two games and they won them both, but they were two very different uh, victories, two very different performances. Uh, the first game uh, against Australia, they won 2-1 very scratchy performance. Um, the first goal was uh, a historic goal, the first VAR-enabled penalty in World Cup history. Right, right. Um, and I think of all the VAR decisions we've seen, it was it was definitely among the most contentious ones. And then an extremely uh, fortuitous own goal. Um, and that, that sort of reflected how France had played. Didier Deschamps had attempted this new-look front three of Antoine Griezmann Kylian Mbappe and Ousmane Dembele and in the hope that they would click and they didn't. Um, so he changed tap for the second match against Peru, uh, which they also won 1-0. And they looked a lot better. Um, right. They're not firing on all cylinders by any stretch of the imagination, but there were, there were phases of the game against Peru, particularly the first half, where you saw what this France team might be capable of. Um, they went in 1-0 up at half-time after a goal by Mbappe, their level dropped quite significantly in the second half, and there were a, there were a couple of anxious moments. But generally speaking, they they kept Peru at bay. So 
you know, we've we've not seen France get anywhere near the the potential that they have with all these talented players in their ranks. But there's there's been definite progress, I'd say, in those first two matches. I mean, what I want to say as well, Tom. Sorry to sort of push a little, but I feel like we're being a bit revisionist, aren't we, with France? Because in '98, it wasn't the quickest start. They had a poor Saudi side. They struggled to beat a fairly weak South Africa team. You know, inched past Paraguay, skin of their teeth. You know, is isn't this just how? Some of the great teams start these tournaments. They start slowly. Yeah, and I think this is something that we forget about World Cups. Um, I mean, there's there's so much, so much interest is generated by World Cups, and you spend so long waiting for them that by the time the group phase matches come round, I, I I feel like sometimes people lose a little bit of perspective. And you know, Italy, the great example of a team who can, uh, you know, arrive at a World Cup right. in shambolic circumstances, trip over the doorstep, <laughs> through the group phase, everyone writes them off. And then as the knockout phase advances, they just get stronger and stronger and stronger. They um, grow into the tournament, don't they? They grow into the tournament. And one of my favourite World Cup matches of all time, um, was from the 2006 tournament when Argentina beat Serbia and Montenegro 6-0. I remember yes, watching yes. that in a, in a pub in London on my lunch hour and just being convinced, like I've not been convinced by anything else in my entire life, that Argentina were going to win the World Cup because they looked so good, because their football was so sensational um, and they crashed out in the quarterfinals against Germany. So there is a lot to be said for keeping your powder dry. And not peaking too early. Exactly. And it it sounds a little bit trite, but I I think there's a lot of truth in it. Um, Well, look at Holland. Look at Holland in the Euros, where they blew away a couple of teams and then got, you know, sucker punch in 08 by Russia. Exactly. And, you know, people were talking about, you know, this sort of return of total football and they'd come out of this really fiendishly difficult group playing fantastic football. Uh, And then, as you say, Kevin's stuck against Russia and... You know, clearly you want to see t- signs of encouragement in the group phase at a World Cup. You know, you want to see good football. You want to see victories. But the only thing that really matters is getting through the group. Mm. And France have, have done that already, despite having played within themselves in their first two matches. Um, so I'd argue that they're, you know, that they're in pretty good shape. And I think particularly when you look at some of the struggles that other teams have had, um, you know, that there's an awful lot of teams who would swap their group phase experience for for France's in an instant. Mm. Can I can I can I push on one other thing as well because I feel like in the World Cup we're very wise after the fact. You know the narrative right now is France are missing a genuinely controlling midfielder. Now I'm not sure how much I buy that. I mean, how much do you think France's World Cup fortunes will be determined by the ability to control midfield in that in that conventional sense? I think France's main issues are in attack. Um, they've got a lot of very talented midfield players and Deschamps has tried out different systems. But basically speaking, if your central midfield options are N'Golo Conte, Paul Pogba, Blaise Matuidi, uh, Corentin Tolisso, Thomas Lamar, you, you have to try quite hard right. not to get a decent midfield out of that. And what we saw in that Peru game was what can happen when Conte plays at the absolute top of his form because he was sensational. I mean, even by Conte standards, even by the Leicester title season, by the Chelsea title season, his performance against Peru was extraordinary, just remarkable. I mean, he was 
everywhere. And that was vital because Peru started the game really well and they play with a lot of energy. They're a very physical team. And you could see a lot of France's players um, taking exception to some of the challenges that they found themselves on, on the end of in the first half. And Conte was the guy who put his foot in, who won the ball back. And I think when he's playing like that, he gives France so much. Um, and he provided the platform for Paul Pogba to play like we all hope Paul Pogba will. Right. Um, set up the goal with a brilliant sequence of play. Um, pinches the ball off the toes of an opponent. Little classic Pogba roll over roll of the studs over the ball. I mean, seemingly superfluous, but in actual fact, what he's doing in that movement is he's setting the ball up to play the through ball that he's already anticipating, which he plays due to Olivier Giroud. His shot is deflected, loops over the goalkeeper, Mbappe taps it in. Um, I, I, I don't think a Conte Pogba midfield two will ever feel perfectly balanced, but when Conte plays like he did against Peru, uh, it, it can work. Uh, and I think Pogba really enjoyed playing with him. So uh, great! So basically, okay. France, France, the new Leicester. Wonderful. That, that's my that's my soundbite. Thank you so much, Tom. I love <laughs> but uh, before you go, I want to put you on the spot one last time. So, look, France are my tip for the tournament. How realistic a prospect do you think it is that come mid-July we will see France lifting that World Cup trophy? I think if you'd asked me before the tournament, I'd have said probably not. Um, I think having seen them play twice and having seen how some of the other favourites have fared, I'd probably be more inclined to agree with you. Uh, I, I still wouldn't have France as favourites, but I think where they find themselves after two games is that They've qualified for the last 16 without any scares. Um, they've qualified for the last 16, having not really come anywhere near top gear, if you accept 10 minutes uh, at the end of the first half against Peru. Um, Deschamps has really struggled to find a winning formula over the last 12, 18 months. I think he's been very conscious of the fact that he's got this incredible array of talented attacking players at his disposal and he's I, I feel like he's almost felt this obligation to try and think a bit more creatively uh, about how to construct his team which is not really a Deschamps thing and and what's actually happened is now that we've got to the tournament is he's realized that he's tried all these different things he's tried a midfield diamond uh, with two up front he's tried a loose limbed 4-3-3 and he it hasn't worked and it's those aren't systems that he feels comfortable with what he likes is having a front two of Griezmann and Giroud um, against Peru. He played Matuidi as one of the attacking midfielders. Right. It's not Matuidi's attacking, attacking position, but it, you know it, it worked reasonably well. So I think for the first time in a little while, we have a sense now of what France's on-pitch identity is. We know how strong their first eleven is. We know the options they have on the bench. There, there are still issues there. I mean, defensively, they still looked a little bit shaky at times against Peru you know that they're they're far from the finished article but they're getting there so right and maybe the answer for Deschamps is to keep evolving with the team yeah and I think he's you know I I think the way the team played against Peru and the way that he set them out on the pitch I I don't think he's going to deviate very wildly from that and I think when you look at the players who he has quite a lot of players are automatic picks um, if we leave the defence to one side uh, for the time being, it, it, it seems relatively settled 
with with Pavar and Hernandez having come in in place of Sidibe and Mendy, who had injury concerns. Conte will always start. Pogba will always start. Griezmann will always start. Mbappe will always start. And I'd say from now on, after what you did against Peru, Giroud will always start. And that basically leaves one position um, to be decided. It was filled by Matridi against Peru, playing in this um, you know, quite unfamiliar left-sided attacking midfield role. There are so many different players who could fill that position. But that side... You know that there isn't that much leeway for experimentation there, so I, I think I think Deschamps has basically found the formula that he's been looking for over the last twelve eighteen months, um, and I, I don't think there'll be any revolutions now in the way that France play I, I, unless something goes badly wrong. I think he'll he'll trust in this system to see them through as far as they can get. Wonderful. Well, uh, as someone who's tipped them myself, I hope they go as far as they can, but. Um... Tom, an absolute pleasure to have you on. And thank you so much for your expertise. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks very much, Musa. My pleasure as well. Thank, thank you. you. So, Michael, talking of big surprises, the form of Russia. Eight goals scored. I think one conceded. Two matches through to the next round. Where's that come from? Out of nowhere, really. <laughs> Good question. I mean, I had them down to go out in the group stage. Um, if you look at... Obviously, they didn't qualify for this tournament. But if you look at their their friendly form for the last couple of years. They haven't been great. No, not at all. Um, Arguably the poorest host, well, on paper, in recent memory. True. So that makes their their form so far um, all the more surprising. Um, <laughs> I still think that they're going to go out to the first half decent Have they, they benefited, though, from low expectation? Maybe they're playing with freedom. There was a sense of that in the first game. You know, you saw Saudi start fairly well, good short passing there just came a point where I felt that Russia won the arm wrestle and just blew through the Saudis after about half an hour true and they've played you know Saudi uh, uh, the lowest ranked team in the tournament Um, Egypt you know without a fit and firing Mo Salah uh, not the same team Um, but they will be facing a Uruguay team who know what they're doing we say that but what I love about what Russia did you know in terms of playing football they blew away the Saudis in a way that Uruguay couldn't. Uruguay made heavy weather of both those matches. That was interesting. I didn't. I did not expect to see Russia shift the ball as quickly on the break as they did and find as many gaps as they did. It's the Uruguay way to make heavy weather, though. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> actually, that's a that's a good point. Actually, Uruguay don't really hammer teams at the World Cup, but they always seem to edge their way through. They always get what they need. Three points. Boom. Yeah. True. 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 Done. Um, and I think they'll get three points against Russia. I think this will be the end um, of their run. Um, they'll go through as a second-place team, and then things will get interesting. And well, talking of very interesting things, segue, Germany. Oh, I mean, that's something we did not see coming, that defeat to Mexico. What do you think was the anatomy of that defeat? What were the key elements? Uh, one word, arrogance. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, or arrogance specific tactically or just a general a spiritual I don't think it comes lacking. from the top I think it comes from a group of players that have become a bit too comfortable in the Bundesliga um, the majority of them I was particularly struck by a comment from Marco Royce before the game um, when he was asked you know how he felt about being dropped um, or being rested rather and he said um, 
Well, I don't mind being rested because we're expecting the tournament to go on for a long time. Goodness me. And that kind of comment doesn't really... I mean, this is Mexico. This is not their first rodeo. What was interesting for me watching Mexico against Germany was how the Mexican strengths matched up almost precisely with the German weaknesses. So Germany pushed up very high on the right. Kimmich, Müller, there was a bit of an overlap going on there and Ozil playing into the channel. But the, the Mexico counterattack in that first half was absolutely devastating, down exactly the same flank, and they exposed them time and again. I was very surprised to hear the Germany defenders so open in the criticism. I think Mats Hummels came out afterwards and said, basically, it's just me and Jerome at the back being exposed, which you don't normally hear, that kind of explicit criticism. It's almost like they're sniping at each other already. already strange, looking very for the, strange. Yeah. For, the, for excuses. And I was struck as well by um, uh, the comments from Sammy Kadira, who, let's face it, didn't... He was one of the... He's coming for the most criticism, let's say. I think unfairly, actually. Yeah, he's... He didn't play well. He didn't have his best game. Um but he wasn't necessarily the worst. Um, but a Swedish TV reporter, you know, gave Kadira two airline tickets back home as a joke. Um, and Kadira was so angry about that. He said, you know, we don't need those tickets. We won't need them on Saturday. And, you know, we we won't go back on Saturday. We'll be here until the 16th of July. Um, I like that, though. I think that's diff- that, that, to me, is a really good way to sort of bite back and be no we're around we're here to stay we mean business it well it's it's either that or it's showing that the pressure is getting to them already because they this is a huge game and of course if you're listening to this podcast after saturday you'll know more than us about this um but this is make or break for them and this is not a position they expected to be in a few days ago who's going to deliver for them do you think in the next couple of games, you know, let's assume the Sweden, the Sweden game's already gone. Who are the players at the end of this tournament will look back and say they're the ones that delivered for Germany? Well, it's the ones that are not at the moment. Thomas Muller. Um, it's not about scapegoating guys because really the whole team are not pulling their weight. But you look at guys that have been there and done it. And people like Thomas Muller um, need to step up their game. Um, he just wasn't at the races against Mexico. It's funny because, you know, Thomas Muller is a man for whom the World Cup was almost made. And he started that game very well, to be fair to him. He started a couple of fantastic passes into channels against Mexico. And I feel maybe it's the same as you do, that the best is yet to come from him. Yeah. Uh, and e- equally, Marco Royce, who we expect to come back into the team. Um, I think he will inject that kind of pace and power to their attacks that was yeah it was really missing against Mexico um they they really did miss him and it was baffling that he um that he didn't play and he played in the the final warm-up game as well against Saudi Arabia he impressed um and it seemed clear that he would play alongside Ozil and Muller just behind Timo Werner um Draxler to be fair to him did okay I thought so Uh, he wasn't one he was you know he was at least making the right runs and trying to do the right things um, and also a shout out to Marvin Plattenhart as well, who came into the team at relatively short notice, played at left back in place of Jonas Hector, who um, who has the flu. Um, it's a slightly uncertain start from Plattenhart, but yeah. down his flank, there wasn't that much danger, I think. I think most of the danger came down the left. It was a relatively comfortable debut for him. Um, I think so. But Germany needs need to do this, and they, you know they're not often in this situation where they need to win in the group stage to stay in it. And you know it's um, 
it's it's worth remembering that every European team to win the World Cup since 1998 has gone out in the group stage four years later. Ooh, that's well. Good time to buck a trend. And actually, I mean, I'm a big fan of segues on this podcast. <laughs> and you said the word expects before, and I just latched onto it. And since we're talking about expectations, great expectations, we have to finish by discussing England because we're getting excited, aren't we? Just a little bit excited. Well, a late win against Tunisia, Harry Kane in goal scoring form, just like he is for Spurs. Let's not get excited. We're both English at the end of the day. I'm not really We know excited. what's coming. I'm not really that excited. <laughs> I was very calm throughout this game. Well, I was excited for the first. Well, well I mean, I, th- I think overall it was actually quite a, a good performance. It was. Uh, it was pretty much what we expected from them. It was thrilling. It was attacking. And they kind of lost their way a little bit after the penalty. But for the first 25 minutes, they were they were superb. Um, they didn't finish off those chances, but they were making them. And that's the encouraging thing. I think Jesse Lingard was actually, he came in for some criticism, but I thought he was good. Um, he well, missed. it's the Andy Cole thing, isn't it? He missed from that distance. But then again, the movement to get there yeah, was a positive sign. You would expect against an opposition like Panama, um, with the greatest respect that he will be getting into those positions again. Um, but of course, you can't mention England without speaking about Harry Kane. And he's just absolutely The lethal. best pure number nine in the world. The best. I think so. I mean, I think the only one that rivals him is um, at the moment is Lewandowski. Um, but I think... I just think Kane Kane's the better just, playmaker. Just I just think, look, from within... Once you get within 45 minutes... Haha. <laughs> I just think that once you get within 45 yards of the opposition goal, Kane is dangerous. He can play superb passes inside, outside of the right foot, can finish with either foot, he can head, he can link up the attack, start the counter-attack, finish it. Just an unbelievable focal point for an attack. Yeah, Complete striker. And I think, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that Ronaldo already has a few goals under his belt, is it four already in two games? You'd be looking at Kane as the, the golden boot winner. And what's so exciting, I think, is that he's really translated the club form seamlessly to the international level, which is great to see. Yeah. And I think England as a whole are this, uh, they're, they're an exciting project. I don't think anyone's expecting them to to win the tournament. Um, but they're here to entertain. And so far, they're delivering in that respect. What do you think England need to do more of in the coming games? Not not, not being negative, being sort of constructive. You know, where are the areas where we feel, okay, that they're, they're an 8 out of 10 here and there? What can they do to sort of really push this forward? They miss Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain massively. Um, I think the Tunisia game was crying out for an England player to, a bit like Argentina, actually, against Croatia. So just get on the ball and make stuff happen. Drive through the midfield. Um Oxley chamberlain is that guy and he was doing it for the last three months of the season for Liverpool. Um, but of course he got injured and I think England desperately, um, desperately miss him. Isn't it ironic that England are finally playing a formation that would have been perfect <laughs> for Lampard and Gerrard? <laughs> a 3-5-2 with two eights. Lampard or Gerrard. Well, both. Both. I mean, <laughs> Never look, both. Th- oh, come on. <laughs> but look, a 3-5-2 with... A holding midfielder and two eights coming off them because now we've got what we've got, um, I suppose, Deli Ali and Lingard, who are actually really both tens, they're very different types, but both tens or second strikers as the eights playing behind 
Sterling and Kane. I mean, this is actually perfection for Lampard and Gerrard, isn't it? This is this is the irony. The cruel irony. The cruel irony. <laughs> it is poetic, isn't it? I think England also need to um, sharpen up at the back, but I think they're only going to do that with better players, unfortunately. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they're playing a three-five-two, which. But I like, I like, I like what Wyatt offers. Actually, funny enough, the most uncomfortable, and I, I say that relatively speaking, has been Kyle Walker, which you'd expect because he's not a natural centre back. He's a, you know, he's a flying right winger slash right back hybrid, right wing back. You know, and I, I, what I love about Kyle Walker is he's taken that hit. He's like, you know, like Lovren took the hit for Liverpool slightly more exposed in that position but he's adapted in, in a beautiful fashion and I think the great thing about Kyle Walker is what you slightly lose in terms of the pure defensive solidity you more than make up for with the playmaking and the way he can join the line yeah. almost like a kind of fullback does in rugby and England are lucky that they've got a couple of right back options already right that can uh, fill that void Trippier and you know Alexander Arnold who's already played a Champions League final can can I just say, isn't just exciting to see an England team that plays one touch, two touch football at speed with great interchangeable movement. It's just wonderful, isn't it? It is. And, you know, Gareth Southgate has to take a lot of credit. Um, and I think it helps as well that he played for England. He knows what's required in these kind of tournaments. And he's adapted the formation to the same formation that he played in in 98 under Glenn Hoddle, which was a 3 5 2 as well. Um, so he played alongside Tony Adams and Sol Campbell. And I guess going back to your point about Carl Walker, he may see something in Walker that he sees in himself, especially he gets a bit older as well and his speed has gone or not gone yet. But There's an awareness though with Walker's play. What I love about Walker is the way his game's evolved. And that's a credit to obviously his coach at club level, Pochettino, but also to the player himself and Guardiola to an extent too. What's so exciting about Southgate is that he has created an environment for these players to express themselves and with the generation of players we've got coming through, winning at youth level, I think we've got a lot to be not only hopeful about, but excited about in the years to come. I would agree. And I think England's best players are are still young. But by the time the next World Cup comes along, they would have that experience under their belt. And I agree that the future is bright. Good. Well, in that case, let us end. Not expectant, but hopeful. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a review on iTunes. If you'd like to follow us on social media, the handles are the same in all cases across Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Rabonamag. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope to see you again soon. And all listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you soon too.